0: With the mounting number of foot and mouth disease cases affecting Mzanzi's farmers, in this edition we share a guide to diagnosing FMD plus tips and treatment methods. Seasoned farmers maintain that diversification is key for new players in the game, and this week experts focus on growing microgreens. Farmers say it's an ideal produce to expand on a small scale, but establishing a market is vital. Our book of the week is Lost and Founder. A painfully honest field guide to a startup world by Rand Fishkin. And our Farmer Tip of the Week comes from Sibosiso Traba, co founder and CEO of Africa
1: Cannabis Advisory Group. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs.
0: Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 131 of Farmer's Inside Track. And if you don't know it by now, I'm your host, Dawn Now we kick off with that promise guide to diagnosing foot and mouth disease for new farmers. Nicole Ludolf chats to Dr. Didi Klassen, AfriVets Executive for Technical and
2: Marketing Support. Thank you so much, Dawn. Dr. Klassen, can you please tell us what foot and mouth disease is and why farmers should be worried about it?
3: Foot-and-mouth disease is a viral disease that affects cloven-hoofed animals. So that's pigs, cattle, sheep and goats. And it has a very short incubation period. So from the time that the animals are exposed to the virus until the time that they start showing symptoms can be days. And that makes it spread rapidly. So one day there'll be a few animals and then a few days later almost your entire herd can be affected. And it leads to production losses. The animals can't walk and they don't eat as well. And then the biggest impact that we should worry about the most is the effect it has on trade, not only local, but also our international trade. The moment the OIE or the World Animal Health Organization is notified that we have an outbreak of foot and mouth disease outside our controlled zone, other countries stop imports of our products or our commodities to their country. So wool can't go overseas, we can't move live animals, we can't move raw meat. So it affects our country and our economy substantially and that does not include the losses or the expenses the farmers suffer to try and combat the disease.
2: What are some of the symptoms for foot and mouth disease?
3: As the name states, the lesions are in the mouth and on the feet so between the two hooves and the lesions can be quite severe or quite subtle so what we usually look for is an increased saliva production so you'll see saliva dribbling from the cattle's mouth quite substantially. It's not the only disease that has an increased amount of saliva as a symptom so it's highly suspect to be foot and mouth disease if you have these mouth lesions with increased saliva production and then foot
2: lesions as well. What should farmers do to minimize the chances of their herd contracting foot and mouth disease?
3: So to minimize your risk, I can't reiterate strict biosecurity enough. Biosecurity, biosecurity, biosecurity. So that means you know where animals are coming from, where they were before they come onto your farm. You know what animals they mingled with, where they came from. And then also the vehicles that come onto the farm are clean, disinfected to make sure that you don't spread the virus and you also know who the people are that come onto your farm and what they bring with them. If you're buying animals from auction where they mixed with other animals, so commingling occurred, it's ideal to have those animals quarantined for 30 days and if they remain symptom-free, they can come onto your farm. And then obviously animals from an area that has foot and mouth disease or where there's been a recent outbreak or there are suspected outbreaks, don't buy those animals for now. Don't move animals when you're in that area just to contain the risk of contracting the disease or bringing it onto your farm. So the main thing is be vigilant of where animals are coming from and make sure that they were inspected and deemed healthy before they come to you. And then obviously to disinfect vehicles and tires, et cetera, that the animals were transported on.
2: What is the treatment for foot and mouth disease, if any?
3: There is no specific treatment for foot and mouth disease because it is a virus and the disease is quite short. So from them starting to show symptoms until they've healed it's also quite quickly. The main thing is to prevent secondary bacterial infections because you have these blisters in the mouth and between the toes, they rupture and then bacteria can cause lesions because they can penetrate the skin so to prevent secondary bacterial infections and the animals are really sore so they have these sores in their mouths and between their toes and they really struggle to walk so they can't walk far for food they can't walk far to graze and so it's important that you bring food to them water as well and they struggle to eat so if you can give them softer food in inverted commas That will also go a long way just to make sure that they get nourishment in the time period that they can't eat as well and that they can't walk.
2: Can animals recover from it?
3: Yes, they can definitely recover, especially with the type of FMD virus that's currently spreading in South Africa. So with this specific type, there's a lot of sick animals, so there's a high morbidity rate, but its mortality rate, the number of animals that die, is very low. So that's at least the one bit of good news, but the impact on our economy
2: is disastrous. What should farmers do if they suspect their animals have foot and mouth disease? It is imperative that the state veterinary services or the state vet
3: is contacted immediately when you suspect the disease. There are several diseases that can mimic foot and mouth disease or that can look like foot and mouth disease but isn't. So it's important that an accurate diagnosis is made and that the community is made aware of foot and mouth disease as soon as possible so that we can combat the spread. The disease will die out quick enough or soon enough if we treat it with the urgency that it requires. So contact the state vet or state veterinary services immediately.
2: How can farmers prevent foot and mouth disease from spreading?
3: As I said, biosecurity, biosecurity, biosecurity. Don't move animals if there are outbreaks or suspected cases in your area. And with any disease, do daily inspections. If you look at or inspect your animals on a daily basis, You will pick up diseases, whether it's foot and mouth disease or red water or insert any disease, a tick burden or a severe tick burden. You will pick it up sooner and you'll be able to assist your animals better. So daily inspections of your animals will help prevent disease spread. Not only foot and mouth disease, but it will definitely help if you pick up animals with increased saliva production or difficulty walking or sores in their mouth and then report it. So daily inspections. And then only buy animals from reputable sources. And if you can, animals that come from one source, not animals that came from a source, co-mingled with other animals and then come onto your farm. Think of it as a super spreader event. So it's important to get animals that weren't attending super spreader events and then to bring them to your farm.
0: Thanks, Nicole. And great having you back here on Farmers Inside Track. Dr. Didi Klassen AfriVets Executive for Technical and Marketing Support. Now, seasoned farmers maintain that diversification is key. I've heard it so many times when I engage with farmers on Twitter spaces and everywhere I network. Now, this week, we're going to be showing tips for growing microgreens. Farmers say it's an ideal crop to start on a small scale, but you have to establish a market. First up, Michelle Karel, sir, The founder and CEO of Feel Good Health, an online
1: health shop, starts with an introduction on what microgreens are. They are tiny little plants. So basically, you know, most of us are familiar with sprouts where you would take the seeds of the plants and you obviously have to have clean seeds. You don't want seeds with pesticides and GM seeds and so on. So you take clean seeds and you sprout them and then you use the sprouts. So that's something that we've all kind of become used to microgreens are the next stage up so once the seeds have sprouted and they've produced their first true leaves then before they actually carry on to develop into for example a beetroot seed will sprout it will produce leaves and then before it starts to mature you can use those leaves that it produces in a salad in a smoothie in a stew in any food really you can just cut off the leaves and you can use them in your food those leaves themselves have got greater nutritional value than the actual beetroot or the broccoli or the whatever vegetable that you're using. Quite a new concept on the market because people are used to either buying sprouts or they buy the full-grown vegetable. But obviously the full-grown vegetable take many months to mature. From a farming view, there's a crop and they've got to grow the crop and they've got to nurture the crop and then they've got to harvest the crop. They've got to send it to market. But for microgreens, it's a very quick crop that grows from seed to just seedling stage. So it's not like sprouts with a little bit of a sprout to it. It's like a true plant. It's got the greens and those first true seeds. And from there, you harvest. So you basically then cut off those early leaves and use those as your food. Aquaponics horticulturalist
0: PJ Piri talks about the feasibility of the crop and says it's actually considered as a superfood.
4: Other word that I use for microgreens is superfood. So superfoods, it means it's packed with all the vitamins and the nutrients. So the value from that per kg compared to, let's say, lettuce is more if you're growing microgreens. We're not using your ordinary treated seed there. So also now as a grower, you're going to get less price on your seed for your microgreens. They cost even much lesser than your normal treated seed because you're only growing it for a certain time, let's say for a less period of, let's say for half life. Let's say if you're growing other cultivars where you have multiple cuttings and then but again your price of your seed is more than your price that you pay for seed for your microgreens. Doing multiple cuttings like your irregular, don't cut it maybe two cuttings to generate more revenue or more value out of that plant. Other microgreens is only one cutting and then you're done. But again, it's it's a value, value to rent the kg that you generate from that. For us, it is the volumes that we're pushing. It's an intensive operation where you need tons and tons of produce for you to make a bag. So most people that I know of are only concerned on the overseas market because they're being paid in forex. So they make a lot of money from that.
0: Michelle further explains
1: the market opportunities and harvesting process. From a farming point of view, when you sow your crop, there's so many things that can go wrong between the time you sow your crop and the time you harvest your crop. You know, it can be the weather, it can be storms, it can be a fire, it can be locusts, it can be all sorts of things that can go wrong. But With the microgreens, you're really growing them inside, first of all, so they're protected a lot. And secondly, the crop is fast. So you can control a lot more of the environment with microgreens as a farmer than what you can control when you're growing an outdoor crop. We focus on the home because it's the whole kit and it's the idea of growing it at home. But people who buy microgreens to use at home are a very small market, but the restaurants are a big market. And they want microgreens that are first of all, visually attractive. So they want things that are like the sunflower seeds, the beetroot, the colorful ones that they can mix up with their salads. And there is definitely a market for that out in the restaurants. I've had a restaurant myself in the past, as easy as it is to grow microgreens at home, it's difficult to focus on growing microgreens in a restaurant. So the restaurants are really about, you know, convenience. So they want the product that they can just pick up and sprinkle into their salad or into their stir fry or whatever. And microgreens is a delicate crop. That's where the farmers would probably be challenged in making sure that the microgreens reach their market quickly. It's not like a beetroot. You know, a beetroot is going to last for a long time. It's not easily damaged. So that's the benefit of the microgreens. Fast crop, grow any time of the year, quickly harvested and so on. Whereas the disadvantages of it's a delicate crop, you've got to harvest it and you've got to get it to its source, to its end consumer really quickly in a very careful way that they don't get damaged. Because when they end up on the plate in the restaurant, they've got to look as though they've just been picked from the kitchen, where in actual fact, there's been a journey for them to get there. So that's the challenge of microgreens, that they're not as hardy in farming and getting them to the end customer but it's also the benefit of a quick crop that's not so much influenced by the environment and the things that happen in the environment, and it's a fast harvest.
0: And then finally, Piri focuses on exporting opportunities for farmers. There are
4: crops that can be exported. People are doing it every week. So there's a process called your cold chain. So as long as you understand your cold chain from harvest, from picking, to your storage and to shipment, There's requirements that guide your culture and if you understand that people are doing it every week or are sending their shipments to Europe, Asia, and America, it's not a difficult thing to do, but you just need to understand the requirements of your shelf life requirements because the degrees of storing your microgreens and your degrees of storing like your fruits or your your normal lettuce, they're different. It's, It's doable, but you need to be equipped like your temperature control and the staff that are involved in the production process, they need to be educated about the requirements that are needed. So it's not a difficult thing to do. People are doing it every day. It can be done. It's being done.
0: Thanks so much for joining me, aquaponics horticulturalist PJ Peary and Michelle Carlser, the founder and CEO of Feel Good Health, an online health shop. Now for more on this, visit Food from Mzanzi's YouTube channel to listen to our Gather to Grow session on growing microgreens. You'll get all the need to know information for new farmers wanting to expand with this crop. Next up, and before we let you go, our book of the week is Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world by Rand Fishkin. In the Anatomy of Strategy podcast, the author explains what he thinks about growth hacking, a term for strategies focused solely on growth.
5: Thankfully, right now we're finally at, at the end of that phase. Like I'm seeing even in Silicon Valley startups, you know, the growth marketers, the growth hackers are changing their titles they're saying, oh, no, wait, I do growth marketing. I do marketing. I'm the director of marketing. I'm the VP of marketing, as opposed to I'm a growth hacker. And I think that it has acquired this more negative reputation. And that is because it is such a short-term practice. So the experience that I had at Moz, which I talked about in Lawson Founder, was essentially that we'd chase a growth hack. We'd find one that sort of, oh, man, this really moved the needle for us. And then we'd keep trying to juice it. Mm -hmm. And The second time you do it, the third time, the fourth time, it it just falls in value and falls in success rate and eventually burns out as opposed to putting those same efforts of discovery and testing and iteration into a flywheel, right? Something that scales with decreasing friction, Mm -hmm. something that you can do over and over again and will keep producing results and hopefully more results than it did last time. You know, podcasting is a great example of that. Hopefully many people will listen to this podcast and they will enjoy it, and they will share it with their friends and coworkers and people in their networks. Mm -hmm. And then the next time you produce a podcast, you will have more listeners. And that will give you more surface area to distribute to even more listeners in the future. And so every time you're doing the same amount of work, but getting more and more out of it, that's exactly what a flywheel is meant to build. A growth hack is sort of the opposite. You find this thing, you abuse it, It's often slightly unethical to very unethical. It's often skirting around laws. And now there's much more strict privacy protection, email spam compliance, web marketing laws than there ever have been. Influencer marketing has way more laws than it used to, all these kinds of things. And so you're often walking that tightrope in addition to uh, dealing with the fact that most growth hacks fail and all of them fail eventually. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's
4: about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. Right through all departments and companies within the VKB group, we know that farming is not just a job. It's a way of life. Let VKB help you in all aspects of the food valley chain by efficiently reducing costs and optimizing value. Follow VKB on Facebook or vkb.co.za to find out how VKB can help you. VKB, for the love of the land.
0: Now, remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. Now, before we let you go, our farmer tip of the week comes from Sibosi Sotkaba, co-founder and CEO of Africa Cannabis Advisory Group. He gives us some insight on hemp. He shares some tips on how new farmers can penetrate to the cannabis industry. Hemp actually has approximately four times higher carbon dioxide absorption factor than other similar crops, which over time we believe is going to fit into credit sequestration model. And so young people are looking to go into this industry, the biggest motivation is the impact that you can make in terms of building sustainable say, hemp cultivation operations or getting into the medical space to help people in terms of their health and as a substitute to pharmaceutical drugs, which can be extremely dangerous over long periods of time. The mission in terms of how much good we can do as young people in terms of putting our hearts and souls into building cannabis businesses and initiatives is pretty incredible. And our Farmer Top of the Week from Sibosu co-founder and CEO of Africa Cannabis Advisory Group, brings us to an end of another exciting episode. Now remember, if you love this podcast, you better rate it and share it with your friends, family members and don't forget your fellow farmers. And also be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From Ido Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, our producer Ming and Defend, and the rest of the Food for Mzanzi team, have an awesome week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring
4: story.